Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 247. And my guest today is Chris Hamilton. Chris is a photographer and a fisherman from Greenport, New York. Chris grew up in a fishing family. And the photos that he takes are photos from his father's fishing vessel. So he's kind of got unparalleled access. He's out on the ocean. In fact, his Insta stories are really fantastic. You need to give him a follow because there will be a photo of like 6 a.m., sun just rising on the horizon over the water, and it's so beautiful. I already have these sort of nostalgic feelings for the east end of Long Island. I grew up in Smithtown, which is actually kind of eastern if you think about it, but the east end of Long Island and the eastern parts of Suffolk are like a, a world unto itself on Long Island. But it was a magical place for me. I've talked before about driving out to Montauk in the summers with my friends and driving home late at night. But the North Fork was a place that I would go if we were going pumpkin picking or apple picking. It's a bit quieter. It's still real, real busy in the summer but a bit quieter. And it is, man, from this city, it is a voyage. It's a trip. I did about five hours worth of driving uh, to get out to Greenport, but I'm really happy that I went out there. I've been rediscovering the magic of the place, and I've got a few more episodes coming up from out there. But back to Chris. Chris's photography is incredible. And I don't know why I'm so fascinated by the fisherman lifestyle. Like we, we talked about this a bit and we kind of got to the bottom of it, but you know, growing up on the North Fork of Long Island in Smithtown, we were right by the water and we would go to the beach all the time and we would fish and we would uh, go clamming and we would get mussels. So maybe that's part of it, but I don't know if you've been listening to this podcast for the last, what, uh, four years, I guess I've been doing this. You know, I don't fit into, I don't know, the mainstream. And as much as I can escape the rat race and live outside of the collusion of government and corporate media and corporate businesses and I don't know, all of the, the things that I think are, are BS, the more I can live outside of that, the better. And going out to the East End does feel like unplugging a bit and escaping. So it was a real pleasure to sit down with Chris. I greatly admire his work. And I really think he could like blow up. Uh, he's, he's, he's doing some amazing photography. And so it was great to learn about his life and to hear about his dad and to hear about stories from being out on the water. I'm envious of it in a way. Um, maybe if I could... If I could do it all over again, uh, I would be a Bayman myself. Who knows? But uh, yeah, go to the show notes for this episode and I will have a link to Chris's, pay, uh, not Patreon, Patreon is mine, to his Instagram account. That is where you can see all of his photography and it's, it's really quite incredible. And he'll also have updates for when he has shows and stuff like that out on the east end of Long Island. Also in the notes for this episode is a link to my Patreon account. Uh, 
That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks like stickers, shirts, zines, and things from around the world. But for now, put your feet up, kick back and relax, and enjoy this conversation with Chris Hamilton. All right. Well, first of all, uh, thank you. This is a real treat to do two in a day, but to get to meet you and to spend time with you. So thanks so much, man. Yeah, definitely. Glad to be here. All right. So the question I always get from everybody when I first come out to everywhere, because I hate doing these online uh, over Zoom, I like to do them in person, is how did you find out about me? I don't remember, but I'll, I'll (laughs) I'll tell you what I think it is. I have no sort of background in... Uh, you know, commercial fishing or anything like that. Sure. I grew up on the North Shore, so my dad had a clam rake, and okay. we would do like surf casting, but it's not the world I come from. But I think through reading a lot, especially as a child, I have like a fascination with like the the people of the water. Sure. And there's a gentleman, my dad moved to Maryland, and there's a gentleman out there who's a painter. And I discovered him at like the same time that I discovered you. And he paints fishermen and their vessels and them on the water. And it's so beautiful. And then I was checking out like the series you've done of your father and it's a different medium, but it's similar. Similar. Yeah. And I feel like this, like when I look at it, this sort of like great appreciation for the labor and sort of lifestyle that goes along with it. So, uh, I'm much impressed by what you do. All right, cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, Something that I kind of grew up with, um, being the son of a fisherman, I've been around boats my whole life, fishing, being on the water, all that stuff my whole life. Something I did with my dad as um, as a teenager a little bit, um, you know, my brother did more of that kind of work. Um, I think my brother was a little bit more motivated at that age to uh, to work hard and earn a living, and I, I think at, at at that point, um, as a teenager, I was a little bit more interested in skateboarding and chasing girls. So, um, I didn't do it as much as my brother did as a teenager. Um, but then kind of like found working with my dad again, um, God, many years later, uh, probably about 10 years ago. Um, and this was, uh, this sort of happened naturally, uh, after my brother had passed, um, my wanting to, I guess, uh, reconnect with my father for healing purposes, but also just for, um, you know, I was kind of at the point in my life where I was shifting gears in terms of work. I was running a landscape business with my brother for about 10 years through my 20s and my 30s. Um, and when my brother passed, um, I moved on from the landscaping and um, really just kind of had no direction and was sort of okay with that at that point in my life. I was just sort of like, all right, let's feel this out and see where I end up. And I just ended up fishing with my dad again um, for, for, like I said, a couple different reasons. Um, and then it just sort of um, became a seasonal thing for me to fish with my dad in the spring. Uh, I'd go uh, bartending in the summer uh, did a little landscaping on the side, and then um, you know we always had scallop season in the fall. So I was always uh, kind of helping my dad out seasonally, uh, at least for the first few years, and then started fishing with my dad again full time. 
I'd say probably, probably three or four years ago. There's a lot for me to unpack from that. Yeah, (laughs) sorry. No, no, that's amazing. (laughs) So you, uh, born and raised in Greenport. Born and raised in Greenport, yep. Good place to grow up. Um, yeah, you didn't know it at the time, mm. you know, because as a teenager or, or, you know, younger kid, it was always like, you didn't really have, um, much to compare it to. So of course the grass was only always greener, like, uh, it sucks out here and, you know, there's nothing to do. And this is, you know, growing up as a kid in the seventies and the eighties and Greenport was a lot different than it is now. So there wasn't nearly as much to do, I think. As there is now, but now that I look back on it, um, it didn't suck at all. It was it was perfect. You know, I, I grew up in Smithtown. I'm an '86 baby. Yep. Um, you're a ways east, so there are, there are fewer people out here. But I did also have like such a, a sense of angst, like I got to get out of this place, sure. which I think a lot of people in like suburban America feel. But I'm 35 and I'm like rediscovering the good parts of Long Island of through this podcast. I think that happens as you get older and you learn to appreciate certain things. You know, for me, I, I valued different things uh, at different points in my life. And um, um, I, I, I can say this, I, I certainly don't regret growing up here. Um, I think it sort of, uh, molded me into the person that I am and it's made me appreciate, um, nature, Mm. uh, it's made me appreciate being out in the water, certainly made me appreciate, um, you know, a hard day's work when I'm uh, working with my dad on the, on the boats. Um, but it's also made me appreciate, um, uh, I wouldn't say isolation necessarily, but you know, growing up out here, you could go to any dead end road with your buddies and there's nobody else there. And you go have a few beers or do whatever you're doing and play hacky sack or, you know, the things we did as as teenagers and in my early twenties. And, um, you didn't compete with other people for space or for Mm. privacy. And that's certainly something that I value today, uh, growing up and, and living out here. It's, it's, you certainly appreciate the ability to get away from everybody and enjoy the quiet, which I personally love. It also seems to me, at least, um, that especially probably in like the artist community, that everybody kind of knows everybody. Oh yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I could walk downtown right now and I'll just leave my yeah. hand in the air. It's like you know, you you know everybody that's that's driving by or walking by or the store owners. Um, and that's a, you know, it, it, it can be a double edged sword. Sometimes that's a, a negative thing. Gossip wise, I guess as a younger person that could be like, everybody knows your business sort of thing. Um, I certainly don't see it that way now. I see it like a, a huge, uh, positive. It's, um, it's a very, uh, close knit community. If anybody ever needs help, uh, there's, 10 people volunteering to help, um, you know, your, your friends, um, and your family and your community. And it's, it's all one big, um, support network in so many ways. And it's just, um, I, you know, I, I like being able to go into the grocery store and and I know the tellers by name and I see five people through the aisles that I know, um, by name. Um, and to me, I think that's a, a, huge 
plus for a small community, especially one that's going through some some changes right now. Um, but I, I think that's certainly one of the assets of, of being in a small town. Um, it's just, it's, um, it, it's, it's home, you know, it makes you feel like you're at home. I know that in the south, the south, uh, the south part of Long Island, like if you go to the Hamptons, you go to Montauk, it's a much different place in the summer than it is in off season sure. because so many people flock out. Uh, but because now of like, what, since like the 70s, like 40, 50 years of that, you have a changing dynamic to the neighborhood because now more people are moving in. Is that what you mean when you say that things have changed a bit here? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, obviously, there's a, there's a lot more new homeowners out here now, especially since COVID. Um, uh, yeah. And there's a lot more uh, year-round residents uh, as well because of COVID. People are working from home more often now. Um, but yeah, you know, you, the changes that I've seen are sort of, uh, they're certainly good for my art sales. I'll mm. say that. Uh, they're certainly good for the local businesses, bartenders, restaurants, servers, all that stuff. Everybody's got, um, job security in a sense. There's, there's plenty of people here, but you know, Greenport used to be a, a fishing village, quiet fishing village, farm, lots of farms, um, blue collar. And that demographic is certainly changing, uh, especially within the last couple of years. There's a lot of uh, people moving out from the city that want to simplify their lives and 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 um, get out of the city life. And I certainly can't blame them because I'm not a city person. I just that's not uh, there's not much of an appeal for me uh, to be living in the city. Um, but it's also one of those things that certainly can have negative effects on all those things that I was speaking of earlier. Having uh, your privacy, having that uh, solitude, having um, that sense of like close-knit community. Um, and I, I don't think the community aspect of it changes. It's just that there's more people here now. Mm. Um, you know, you go to one of your favorite beaches nowadays and you're going to see people you don't know. And that's probably super normal for, I guess, the majority of the population of the world. Like, you know, you, but for us out here being so isolated, like it's almost, you almost feel like, well, who the hell's on my beach? And it's not my beach per se, but it's just sort of how you feel. Like you're very protective of, um, of the spaces that you grew up and, and, um, and have lived in, um, and it's funny because like when I sell pictures, you know, I, I get a lot of people who see like images, for example, of uh, one of our local beaches and they're like, oh, that's my beach. And I'm like, what? That's not <laughs> your beach, man. You haven't even lived here for more than five years. Like, and it's like, you don't take offense to it, but it sort of triggers something inside, uh, at least for me, that's, that's, it's, um, I guess just having a lot of, um, what's the right word, love and affection for the place that I've grown up in and, and feeling very protective of it. And so some of those changes are, you know, uh, you're feeling a little bit more crowded these days. Uh, there's longer lines, there's more traffic. Uh, the quality of living here is, in my opinion, dropping a little bit because of those things and also uh, real estate values. I can't afford to live here anymore. You know, I, I can't afford to buy a home here anymore. Um, and that's directly um, as a result of um, 
outside people wanting to move here. And, um, you know, so it is a double-edged sword in, in a lot of ways. But um, certainly the community, the close-knit community thing is still here. That's uh, something I'm very happy to be pr- a part of. And um, the, the natural beauty, obviously, is still here. And I, I get a lot of um, peace of mind, I suppose, knowing that I could go out in the boat anytime and get away from everything. So that's certainly always an option. Yeah, it's interesting. This will be a bit loaded, and I won't spend too much time on this, but I see this with like guest after guest after guest, and I'm like, as you were talking, I was trying to figure out like how to best word this, but I feel like we have reached a point as a culture and society of like industrial progress, maybe or something like that, where we've hit a tipping point where people want to go back, and I see it with with chefs, with people now wanting like nose to tail cooking where they once would like quite literally put their nose up to that or yeah. people uh, returning to like craftsmanship sure, or even like we talked about um, sort of with like the appreciation for the work that's being done in the pictures that you portray, a greater appreciation for like working class and blue collar where there was a time and I'll even admit like going through college, you come out thinking like, oh, like I'm so smart and mighty. Right. And then it's like, okay, not really, like those people are working way harder than you, in many ways are smarter than you. Um, and yeah, I'm one of those people who's like completely rounded the corner on that, I think. Yeah, that I mean, sense. I think that's a very true statement. I mean, you're, you're seeing people um, get to the point where they want to get more in touch with things that matter, I think. Mm. You know, like going to, you know, you're, chain grocery store and getting plastic wrapped produce or plastic wrapped meat that you have no idea where it comes from. It's just sort of like, and we all know that some of these things are bad for us because for whatever reason, the FDA allows it. Um, and, and, you know, there is, I think people are more um, Inclined to have their own farms or their own gardens these days, or, yeah. or to do the farm, the farm to table movement, uh, the dock to dish movement from seafood, um, and and I think it's because it's 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 um, initially because of sustainability and environmental impact, and and then people see that and they say, well, I want to feel good about how I'm perceived as a consumer or how I perceive myself as a human on this planet and what is my carbon footprint. And, and so I think that that movement sort of gained momentum, but I think now it's almost, um, unfortunately it's, it becomes trendy. Yeah. And so now the people who are, aren't really living that way, they want to it's an aesthetic. They want to be like, okay, this is for my Instagram, right? Yeah. This is what I'm doing, and this, and maybe they don't really live that way or or feel that way deep down inside. And it's sort of become, um, you know, it's sort of become trendy to to be a part of that movement. Um, so you do get some aspects of of that uh, that um, desire to, to be more connected, but it's, it's, uh, there's always, I guess, a small percentage of that. That's really just for show. Mm. Um, which for me is always, uh, is for me is always a little disappointing. And then that may be one of the reasons I struggle with social media to some degree is that I just, you know, you get on there and you start flipping through stuff and it's just, 
there's so much nonsense and 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 fake and um, it's. I just have a hard time wrapping my head around it sometimes. Just uh, and it's just you know you get exposed to all this stuff and it it does affect your brain and it affects yeah. the way you compare your life to other people's lives and how you feel about yourself and. Um, so I guess that's one of the reasons I do struggle with, with social media and somehow I just segued into that. Sorry about that. No, but, no, it's cool. That's what um, we do. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, and that's, um, I, I feel like there's, there's so many people who are, or are, are doing things authentically, hmm. but there's so many people that aren't. And, um, and it makes it hard to, uh, it, it certainly makes it hard to navigate, especially yeah, uh, you know, through uh, social media platforms. Yeah. Well, I'll bring it back to Dad. So, sure. It, is it correct to say that he's a commercial fisherman? Yes. Now, maybe someone's here commercial and think that means like corporate. Uh, how would you define co- commercial fisherman? Um, well, commercial fisherman is basically somebody that is um, fishing to obviously make a profit, um, but they are selling their catch. So you you could be a commercial fisherman, you could be a recreational fisherman, you could be a charter fisherman. Um, you know, the charter fishermen are selling the trip right. to go fishing to catch fish. They're not selling the fish. So the commercial guys are the guys who are out there. They're not bringing people on their boat. They're not bringing, um, certainly not bringing photographers <laughs> or uh, videographers or people uh, day tripping out on their boat for fun. Um, they're out there to work, to catch fish, and to sell the fish to the market so that people can consume it. Um, so definitely there's a big difference between commercial, recreational, charter. Um, you know, We're out there to make a living catching fish. And that's something my dad's done uh, his entire life for, for my entire life. My dad, I believe, started fishing uh, commercially probably in the in the seventies. Wow. Um, so I certainly grew up with that, and that's all I knew. My dad would, um, you know, as a kid, my dad would be gone for a week at a time, and that was normal for us. You know, it'd be dad's going on a fishing trip; he'll be back five days, six days, seven days. Um, nowadays, we're only doing day trips, um, and that's a lot of different reasons for that. But, um, um, you know, I, I did have the opportunity as a kid to to go on those week-long trips with my dad, and some of my best memories were, you know, um, being out in the in the sound or being out in the ocean and, and uh, you know, spending the night on the water, um, unloading fish in Stonington and Connecticut and in Point Judith and Rhode Island and as a 14 year old doing that kind of stuff it was it was pretty cool um, things have changed over the years there's not as many fish to catch uh, it's one of the most poorly regulated industries in the country uh, there's so much red tape um, you've got climate issues that affect uh, fishing stocks and migration patterns so it's, it's very hard to make a living at, uh, especially these days. I mean, it has always been a very hard occupation, but you could make money doing it. Uh, now it's sort of, um, 
still a very hard occupation, but it's very it's even harder now to to make a living at it financially. There's very few commercial fishermen left, right? Well, I mean, it's certainly going in that direction. Yeah. Um, every year, there's less and less guys doing it. Um, you know, in Greenport, Greenport used to have a, a pretty decent sized commercial fishing fleet, and now you could you could count the number of trawlers on on, on two hands, um, maybe even one uh, out of Greenport. So, like a, I'm thinking of like what a lo- like bigger like the next step up or the biggest step up from a commercial fisherman, some like large scale operation would have like giant like drag nets or something like that. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's different levels to it. Um, you know, like for for my dad, he's got a 41 foot uh, trawler. Huh. Um, so we're we're fishing Gardner's Bay. Um, I think the problem you get in terms of overfishing and like the the super trawlers and the you know the factory ships uh, that's offshore uh, where we can't regulate and that's one of the biggest problems with our fish stocks is that we have international vessels coming into um, our territorial waters or even just beyond our territorial waters and they just catch whatever they want. Uh, they don't care about bycatch and it, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of different countries that are doing this. Um, and the hard part is how do you regulate them? You know, because they're what, 200 miles offshore or further, um, or, or even closer. I'm sure a lot of them are, are, are doing it illegally. And, um, you know, we don't have the infrastructure to, to regulate that. Um, but it certainly negatively affects how, um, how we are able to catch fish um, because, you know, what they're doing out there directly affects the fish that come in here. Mm. So it's um, it's all intertwined, you know, just like everything else that, that's happening these days with global warming and climate change. Everything affects everything else. And um, certainly the fish stocks locally have been um, compromised uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, like a lot of people have asked me, like, you know, would you take over your dad's boat when he's done fishing? And, and the simple answer is no, because it's not worth it. I, for, to live that lifestyle, if I didn't need money, um, I, I guess there's part of me that would say, well, I could still do it for fun or just for the lifestyle. Um, but knowing how hard my dad works, um, it's, it's a daunting, uh, task to be a fisherman for sure. You got to do it a hundred percent, or you're probably not going to be successful. At least at that that level. I mean, if you did it seasonally and you, you're doing fish pots and rod and reel, but you're probably not going to make a living off of that. You're just doing that because you like the lifestyle, and you can make a few bucks doing it. But to be a hundred percent commercial fisherman, I don't think I'd. Um, I don't think I would survive doing it because. You need so many skill sets to be successful commercial fishermen. And I, I don't think most people realize how many different skill sets you need to have. Um, you know, obviously you need to be able to be a fisherman. You got to be a meteorologist. You got to, you know, check the weather every day. You've got to be a carpenter. You've got to be an engineer. You've got to be a mechanic. You've got to be a welder. You've got to be a bookkeeper. you got to be a lawyer. And... And I'm probably missing a few things, but you, all those things are, are go into being a commercial fisherman in this day and age. 
Um, there's so much paperwork. There's so many regulations. There's so many laws. There's meetings you got to go to. And you've got to know your craft. And if something breaks down and you're in the middle of the water working, you can't just call like AAA. Yeah. <laughs> They're not just going to come out there and, and fix your boat. You've got to um, you've got to know how to fix it on the fly. And uh, I'll be honest, I don't have those skill sets. I can do certain things, but um, I look at my dad sometimes and just scratch my head and be like, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm. Um, so there's a huge respect that I have for my dad um, in terms of what he has to do to be a successful fisherman. And I know that. And I just, uh, if you gave me a choice to pick that or something else, like my photography, I'm going to say I'm taking photography because um, I'm doing good with it. I can make money off it. I can make a good living off of it with, um, without having the stress of, of, of being a commercial fisherman. I just read The Lost Boys of Montauk sure. by Amanda Fairbanks. Yeah, I don't think I've read that one yet. I just read A Speck in the Sea. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, that's a, that's a good read too. Um, I'll briefly explain that. It's about four men who were lost at sea in a really bad storm uh, in Montauk in the 1980s. But I guess I had never thought much about commercial fishing. And in that book, she said, I think it's like in the top three most dangerous professions. Sure. Were you aware of that growing up and ever like fearful for your dad? Oh, yeah. Um, definitely, definitely um, was aware that fishing was a dangerous job. Um, and I, I guess just because we grew up with it, we didn't really didn't really think about it that much, but we, it certainly wasn't something that we weren't aware of. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, I think we were all very aware that being on the water was, was dangerous. And, um, um, but we always had, um, confidence in, in my dad's abilities and, um, I guess you just kind of grew used to it. You know, I, I think, I think we, as kids, probably got a lot of comfort from my mom's ability to be okay with it, that we said, oh, mom's good, we're good, everybody's good, you know, like we didn't really, and, and it probably wasn't until, you know, we we're a little bit older that I realized how dangerous it, it could be, and there's several instances that had happened uh, with my dad, um, and one very specific moment that I remember was in 1997, uh, summer of 97, I was in college, um, and I hadn't come home for, from, um, from school that summer. I decided to stay in Rhode Island. I was at the University of Rhode Island. And uh, my brother had gone back home to fish with my dad during the summers full time. So my brother was fishing with my dad during the summers um, in, the, in the mid to late 90s. And uh, long story short, my dad and my brother were uh, offshore fishing and they got run over, uh, basically run over by a super tanker, what? Uh, like a six, six or 700 foot tanker, uh, like, you know, um, container ship, um, you know, transporting goods or whatever. Just didn't see them? Yeah, uh, didn't see them Holy and crap. didn't stop. And um, my dad and my brother survived. Uh, the boat got wrecked. Um, luckily it stayed afloat. Um, if my dad hadn't done what he had very last minute, you know, uh, 
to to avert the collision, they both would have been dead. Um, So it was a very close call. And I think, you know, you always realize that it's a dangerous job, but it's, you know, it's like, ah, well, you know, you don't really think about it until it really hits home. Mm. And that was certainly a moment where I was just like, wow, like, you know, my dad and my brother could have just been killed just like that. And nobody would have known um, because the tanker just kept going. They just, uh, they just kept going. Did your dad have a larger crew or was just... No, it was just my brother and my dad. Whoa. Um, we've always had small crews on the boats because uh, his previous boat called Miss Nancy um, was uh, about a 70-foot uh, wooden shrimp trawler uh, that he bought in the Carolinas in the, uh, that was, I think, built in the 50s. Uh, one of the reasons the boat actually survived was because it was wooden and it sort of uh, absorbed the impact Whereas something uh, like a fiberglass hull or a steel hull boat probably would have cracked and, and sunk to the bottom. So certainly saving grace that my dad and my brother were able to avoid um, any catastrophic uh, circumstances from that incident. Um, but it was certainly eye-opening. It was something that my brother and my dad both had physical and mental scars from. Um, not to mention the fact that they had to rebuild the boat. Um and deal with the lawsuit for years and years and years, dealing with insurance companies and that sort of thing. Um, and it's something that we see more recently now. Um, one of the things, we've had some close calls in Gardner's Bay. Really? Or, where guys in, in um, you know, on their sport fishing boats are just plowing across the bay, not paying attention. And we've had um, some very close calls. I mean, we had a boat in Montauk uh, last summer, I believe, that that uh, that sank because somebody wasn't paying attention. So it's it's you know even if you're in in close to shore waters, it's still super dangerous. I mean, we have a lot more recreational boaters out here nowadays, and unfortunately, we have a lot of guys with more money than brains, and they don't know what the hell they're doing on the water, and they put other people at risk. And we see it every summer in Gardner's Bay where, you know, the the other few trawlers that are out there with us, we're all in communication with each other. And, um, you know, we hear them yelling on the radio all the time to sailboats or to power yachts that are not paying attention, and they're like, you're going to hit us. Wow. And if you don't hit the boat itself, you could run into the gear behind the boat. Um, so, I mean, you, you think about all the dangers of being a fisherman that are inherent on your boat itself, but then you've got to worry about other people, you know, that aren't paying attention. Or especially on, you know, like on foggy days where you, you can't you can't see a quarter mile. That's why you got your radar, so you, you pay attention. But a lot of these guys, they don't pay attention. And it's um, we've we've come close to being in accidents over the last few summers. And like I said, that one boat out of Montauk, I can't. I think it's called the Petrel. The guys were just out fishing, and um, I think it was a 60, 70 foot sport yacht wasn't um, wasn't paying attention and ran right into them. Wow! And they sunk. And luckily, they rescued the guys. Um, but for those guys, you know, their 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 life stops for a couple of years. Now they gotta get a new boat, rebuild the boat. They're not making any money. Their 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 income stops because somebody else made a mistake. Wow. 
So it's not just, you know, the weather and the elements and the the nature of the work itself. It's it's all these um, outside factors that affect how we make a living. Um, other people that are on the water, politicians, lawmakers, uh, the, the current market. Um, so it's certainly not... Um, Certainly not an easy way to make a living. This maybe is corny, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, one of my favorite scenes from a movie ever is in uh, Jaws when the three guys are on the boat and it's nighttime and they're getting drunk and they're con- uh, comparing scars. Then they've been bitten by different stuff and hooked and stuff like that. But it was making me think, when you're on like a week-long trip like that, uh, is there downtime and like how would you as a teenager spend it and like and now too yeah i mean there's always downtime on the boat Uh, it depends on how fishing is so for example um so for example like when we go out fishing now uh you know we've got to commute basically to get to the fishing grounds and for us it's anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half uh half an hour uh depending on where we're fishing um, so for me these days, that's when I'm, uh, I've got my camera out, mm. watch the sunrise. I go on the roof of my dad's boat and take photos. If it's a nice day, if it's not, you know, if it's a crappy morning or whatever, uh, it's, uh, sometimes you take a little nap. Um, usually not. I'm usually in the cabin with my dad talking about stuff or, or sometime you read, read a book or go over charts and, and try to learn something while you're out in the water. And there's times where I mess around with knots and try to, you know, you, you try to do something productive with the time. Um, so for me these days, it's been uh, doing photography. Um, back when I was a teenager, it was probably more napping, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because, you know, back then we were fishing offshore and we, you know, we might be doing an hour, two hour uh, toes, which is which means that's how long the net's in the water. So if there's um, some downtime from the previous haul, um, you know, you could take a half an hour nap, take an hour nap, go downstairs, read a book. Um, and my, a lot of times it's just um, just sitting on the deck and appreciating uh, being out in the water mm-hmm. and just enjoying, I, I say quiet, it's not really quiet because you got the diesel diesel engines going, but you sort of have that sort of white noise that sort of reminds you of of, of quiet, um, sort of this mental stillness that you can um, just kind of be in the moment and um, look at the world around you and 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 appreciate it. And I think that's how I started to get into the photography was. Um, just those moments were had, especially watching the sunrise or just having moments in between toes where I had some free time to to just look around and just be like, wow, like not many people get to do this. And sometimes it sucks because the weather sucks, you know, the weather sucks and you got to fight through it and work. But other times it's like, you, you know, you get these amazing sunrises or you see a, a sunfish swim by or a seal pops his head out of the water or you even seagulls now for me are, are a huge um uh, you know i used to i i would say seagulls for me have have changed as a going from nuisance on the boat to more of um opportunities for photography 
And um, as silly as it sounds, I, I, I truly believe that they sort of have like these different personalities. Because when I capture them with my, with my camera, you can almost see like, um, you know, different personalities with, with the birds. And, and um, so I definitely have a new appreciation for seagulls. So definitely, you know, something that I saw as sort of more of a nuisance uh, has certainly changed into um, finding the beauty in them. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Have you ever considered... Now, again, it, I recognize when I talk to people, I'm very, very interested in their lives. But for them, it's like, this is my life, man. Like, this is, this is what I've lived. This is who I am. But, like, there is, like, a real story there in sort of, like, reconnecting with the sea and your dad through the camera. Have you ever thought of, like, even doing, like, a mini documentary or something of, like, your experiences when you're out on the water and filming yeah, that? Yeah, you know, I've actually had a lot, a few, well, not a lot, but I've had a few people ask me about, um, you know, um, the, my sort of story as a fisherman and, and the son of a fisherman and reconnecting with my dad after the loss of my brother and and then finding photography through that, um, which I think is one of the reasons, I don't think it was... A conscious thing when it started, like I wasn't consciously trying to document my life or my lifestyle or my dad's lifestyle. But as I sort of gained interest or people gained interest in my imagery, it sort of evolved that way where I was, um, you know, I realized that the things that I took maybe took for granted because I was so used to being out in the water and working and like these are just, you know, this is just this is just my life, I'm realizing how many people are so, um, one, interested, and, and two, so unaware. And being that the fishing industry is sort of on a downturn, and, and especially locally, um, I think the whole um, lifestyle, it's, it's probably, uh, I don't know that it's misunderstood, but it's certainly not... Um, it's not a lifestyle that's prominent, you know, in, 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 it's not in the spotlight. It's not, it's not something that people see or know about. And I think with the advent of phones, iPhones and having the ability to have a camera on me, well, it was just a natural sort of evolution of like, okay, well, I got a iPhone in my pocket. I can start taking pictures of stuff. And then people sort of started gravitating towards it. And to my surprise, People started asking me for prints of my images, and that's that was probably, gosh, um, that was probably six, probably say six years ago now, um, 2016, 2015, maybe I started shooting, um, and seeing that interest in the imagery, I, I realized that well, you know, most people one will never f experience this sort of thing firsthand. Um, and I think that was sort of the draw to a lot of my imagery is that people were able to experience it through my photographs. Um, and then realizing that I was good at taking photographs, it sort of propelled me to the next step, which was working on it um, and eventually uh, teaching myself photography, teaching myself editing, um, taking chances on doing art shows and printing my work and, and kind of, I, I, you know, the first couple of years that I did this, I was like really struggled with the idea that I was an artist. Mm. Um, 
and I, I guess I still do to some degree, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm more comfortable with it these days for sure. But um, yeah, a big part of it for me is wanting to, uh, aside from the art aspect of it, of sharing, you know, beautiful scenery and, and creating things that people could hang in their homes. It's more about um, making sure that I have content for the day that I do decide to um, write a book mm. or do some type of documentary. Um, and I do, you know, I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of photos and videos and, and I, I should probably build more content, um, which is tough sometimes with my dad because it, it wasn't the easiest thing for him to adjust to um, when I first started doing this. I mean, he's ve- definitely been very supportive, but, um, you know, I, I think if you know any old school fishermen, you know that they're very... Um, very set in their ways, very used to doing things their way. Like their boat is their castle. It is their home. It is their domain. And they want to be in control of every aspect of that. And I can't blame them. But it's also, you know, it's it's a lifestyle. It's it's um it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. He my dad chose that lifestyle um for a lot of different reasons, I think. And and one of them is is the um independence but I think also the solitude you know mm. being out there man versus nature and you're not dealing with um, you know, let's just put it this way my dad would never be the type of guy to work in an office at a computer um, and neither am I and that's probably one of the reasons I have a hard time editing photos is I just hate sitting at the computer I'd rather be outside getting my hands dirty and you know um how does he feel about being the subject? You know what? He I, he doesn't say much about it. Um, I think he's certainly proud that I've been able to do what I have with it. I don't think he's uneasy with it necessarily. Um, I think he kind of enjoys the, the you know the little little bit of limelight that he gets from it. Um, so he doesn't really shy away from it, but he's also not like gung-ho about it you know like he's he's not like hey take a picture of me like it's <laughs> it's it's uh, if I'm able to get a shot of him working it's because um typically because I asked him hey dad can you give me a couple minutes to take some photos um because normally I'd be working as well so it's um and I think a lot of people don't quite realize that you know I'm I'm on the boat as a commercial fisherman I'm not on the boat as a photographer right um, if I had the ability to go on the boat as a photographer, I'd probably have a lot more imagery to share with people. Because uh, there's there's moments where I'm working and I'm just like, if I could just like blink my eyes and capture this image that I'm seeing right now, it would be amazing. But it can't. You know, you you risk uh, you risk your safety. You risk the safety of the person working next to you. You certainly risk um, getting yelled at by my dad. <laughs> um, which happens anyway, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a dangerous job and you got to pay attention and you've got to be aware. And, uh, you know, when I am, am able to get those shots of my dad working, it's because, um, cause I've asked him to give me, you know, give me two minutes with the camera. I'll put it down and then I'm back to work. Um, so that's always, that's always a struggle. I have to pick and choose my moments shooting on the boat. 
Um, like you said, when I have downtime, I can take out the Canon and, and take some photos with, with my, with my DSLR. But when I first started doing it, it was iPhone. iPhone was in my pocket. I could take my gloves off, get the phone out, take a shot, put the phone back in my pocket, get my gloves back on. And I could probably do that in 20 seconds, Yeah, which doesn't always allow me enough time, but a lot of times I could just sneak it out quick, take a shot, and then I'm back to work before my dad's like, what the hell are you doing <laughs> yeah. over there? Um, so that's sort of how it started for me was just, um, you know, obviously it was shooting the easy stuff first when I had downtime, but then I started incorporating like sort of the action shots with the gear coming in or the fish on the deck or my dad working. And I still struggled getting to capture those moments because you sort of you sort of feel like this struggle between wanting to capture images and doing your job as a deckhand hmm. um, and making sure that you're 100% there as a fisherman because um, distractions can cause problems. So there, there's always a, a fine balance between... Can I become photographer for a few minutes, or am I staying fisherman? Uh-huh. Um, so I, I would like to try to find ways to to capture more stuff while I'm working, and um, I think that's something I can accomplish hopefully with uh, with a GoPro and um, or just you know when it is slower, like this time of year. I'm not fishing with my dad as much um, usually towards the end of the summer, or early fall because fishing's slower. Um, and so those those are times where maybe it's um, a more appropriate time for me to be like, hey, Dad, I'm going to come on the boat today, but I'm going to take photos. And as long as he knows that, he's fine with it. Um, and obviously I'm there if he needs help uh, with anything. But um, I think I need to take advantage of, of more of those opportunities to just um, be on the boat with my father and have my main focus be um, documenting it and taking photos and taking videos because uh, I certainly don't do that as much as, as, a, as I would like to. I know, I forget the specific statistic, but I know we've only actually explored and have knowledge of a very small percentage of the ocean. Have you ever pulled in anything as bycatch and you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we definitely have, and I've, you know, sometimes we get a fish every once in a while, and my, I'm like, you know, you, you think, all right, well, my dad will know what this is. He's been doing this his whole life, and he's like, I've never seen that before in my life. Wow. Um, so I, I couldn't say specifically which fish, but like a couple off the top of my head that, you know, we're, um, I've seen for the first time in the last couple of years was um, a fish, I believe it's called a ribbon fish. Uh, it's like a long, thin, almost looks like a really skinny eel. Yeah, I think I've seen those. Um, and I, I initially thought it was like an oar fish, which is certainly not something that's local to our water. Uh, but but that was a cool looking fish. Um, I think my dad knew what that was. But we do get these, you know, tropical species, especially more in more recent years with uh, warmer water. Um, we've gotten this fish called a striped burfish, which looks like, a, um, looks like a puffer fish. And I, it, I'm not sure if it's in the puffer family or not. Um, but it's not supposed to be in our local waters, which is, um, which is cool because I, I, 
do sell a couple prints of, of a photo that I took of that fish, and it, it gives me the ability to talk to people about global warming and climate change, uh, which for me is something that um, I've always been an advo- advocate of the environment and um, try to open people people's eyes to their responsibilities as a human, um, which is harder and harder to do these days. I mean, anytime you go to the grocery store, it's... Everything's wrapped in plastic. I know. I feel like an asshole because I went to IGA because I ran out of water when I was with Verona, and I bought this water, and then I'm like, oh no. It's you know, but at least you're conscious of it, yeah. you know. And, and and if there's a way for me to segue into talking to people about climate issues, which is something I truly believe is happening, um, I actually studied climate change in college in oh. in, um, in the '90s. So it's uh, I've, I studied environmental science and marine affairs. So I've always been very connected to the environment, to the natural world, and to um, certainly more recently uh, being an advocate for the environment, being an advocate for you know animals that don't have a voice, um, and um, trying to open people's eyes up. So when people do see that image of the striped burfish, I, I often say, look, this is a tropical species. It's not supposed to be here. Um, and we're finding more of more that every year that we fish, we're finding fish that are typically tropical species that um, are in our waters. And it's because um, of warmer water temperatures and uh, changing migration patterns and, and just, you know, that whole interconnectedness of, of the planet that's shifting. Um, and we see it. You know, we see it on a first-hand basis. I saw you write about scallops. Yeah, scallops are another thing. I mean, whether they're direct, you know, they're still trying to figure out the causes. And I I certainly believe that warmer water has something to do with it. Um, But it's also, um, it's also pollution. Um, It's also, you know, you have different species of seaweed now that are in our waters that were never here years ago. So maybe there's some connection between different um, different species of animals that that live here now, or different species of um, uh, seaweed that are growing in in, a, in their local waters that affect it. Um, and I know Cornell Cooperative Extension is working on trying to figure that kind of stuff out. But um, I mean, I, I think ultimately it comes down to we as humans are affecting the environment and we have choices to make in our daily lives that can either affect it positively or negatively. And you can't, I mean, it's almost impossible to go to the grocery store and not buy something with plastic in it, but you can make conscious decisions to say, all right, well, maybe I'll buy from the local farm stand instead of going to the grocery store for my produce because, um, you know, that's a little bit more work. It takes a little bit more time, but it, it's, it's a shift in lifestyle, you know, and I, I think people need to be aware that, um, you know, if we don't make changes, even little ones as individuals, then we're on a path for, for, for destruction. And it's, it's, I mean, you just look around you, you see it. I mean, look at the wildfires, look at the floods, look at the, the strength of the hurricanes. Um, I, I think people are, are hesitant to accept that their 
what they do on a daily basis is is, is really affecting the world because it's uh, inconvenient. It's so inconvenient for people, and and um, it's sad because I, I think if if more people were a little bit more um, conscious of of what little changes they make in their lives, and it, you know, and a lot of people say, well, what the hell kind of difference is one little person going to make? And it's just it's 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 knowing that you've done something. Um, for the right reasons, but it's all, it also all, all adds up, you know, I, I think it all adds up and, and that's the only way forward for us as, as a human population is, is to, um, to keep fighting for that, that kind of thing. I really, this is interesting and my brain's popping. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on farmed fish because sure. I've often heard, like these fish are being fed corn and obviously fish don't eat corn it's and horrible. it's pumped full of from what i know and i don't know much about farm fish i've never seen it firsthand i've i've read articles i've seen the horror stories on on some of the stuff that's being marketed in in the grocery stores and it's like um like if if you had a choice between buying you know, uh, produce from your local organic farmer as opposed to, you know, um, some well-known name in the grocery store, I think most people would say, oh, I'll go to my local farmer because uh, they know how it's grown. You have a direct, much more direct connection to to what you're putting in your body. Um so you've got pesticides, you've got um, unsanitary conditions, you've got uh, quality control. Um, there's a reason why tilapia is sold because it's cheap, because it's disgusting. It's not even real fish. I was just going to ask. That. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think there are naturally existing tilapia species out in the world there somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where, but. Um, you know, and a lot of these farms are on floating villages where all the human feces and and uh, garbage is going into the water, and that's that's the fish's food source. Uh, on top of probably chemicals, um, you see it with uh, salmon being farm raised; they're getting all these diseases um, because they're not existing in a natural state. So it's not it's not a good condition for them. I mean. Fish are meant to migrate, and they're not meant to be growing up in pens. So now you've you're creating a a, a situation where now these fish are developing diseases because they're not in their natural state. And now, so what do we do to combat that? We're injecting chemicals and pharmaceuticals, and we're trying to figure out ways to make the fish healthy again. And it actually makes them worse. Mm. Uh, it might fix. You know, uh, uh, a skin problem on the salmon. Uh, I saw there was like some skin rot or some some. It looks horrible, but then they you know add this other stuff that's equally horrible for you to fix the other problem, and now you've got this frankenfish that is being sold, and people don't know about it. I mean, the I've obviously I would because I I I don't even buy fish. I would never personally buy fish from the supermarket because I'm a fisherman. So um, 
you know, I, I don't have to luckily, but, um, you know, I, I think the average consumer has no clue what they're buying. Um, and a lot of it's garbage and it's, it's like our, our, you know, it's like, it's like, it's, it's again, it's a personal choice. Like what, what are you going to do to make a educated decision on what you're, what, what you support through your consumerism? Like I'm also the type of person that's not going to eat a McDonald's hamburger. It's just um, not something I'm going to put in my body. Yeah, I was thinking, so I break the fourth wall a lot here, but I was thinking of asking you, well then, like, what about the middle of the country? Because there's no way to reduce the carbon footprint for like a place like Nebraska that has no access to the oceans. But then I guess like if we're actually thinking of a natural setting, yeah, like if people lived there deep in the past, they wouldn't be eating seafood. Yeah, I guess not. Um, unless you go on river fishing or lake yeah. fishing, or but you could still get a good product, uh, I would imagine, and have it uh, available to you in the supermarket. I mean, I, I couldn't speak for living in a landlocked state because, uh, God for God forbid, I ever had to, <laughs> I would probably uh, lose it. Um, Certainly would not want to live in a landlocked state. Um, no offense to any of those states, but um, being near the water is um, certainly a huge part of my life. Um, not something I would give up easily. But in terms of carbon footprint, I you know I, I think we all struggle with trying to do the right thing, and it's just whether how much energy you want to put into. Um, to making those decisions and, and, and making different choices. And that's a hard thing. Um, especially these days with, you know, everything. And I think we're sort of goes back to that sort of thing we were talking about earlier with, um, people wanting to go back in time sort of, and be more connected and be more, um, you know, like the farm to table movement and, and the doc to dish sort of thing. I, I think people do want to, the people that do want to do it are finding ways mm. to, um, to make decisions that have less of a negative impact. Um, and that's certainly something I try to also talk to people about through my art is, is wanting to be more of a, wanting to use my art more for environmental activism to some degree. Um, and sometimes that can be a little tricky as a commercial fisherman um, to to speak to those sort of values and, and ideals. But um, um, you know, if there's an opportunity for me to to speak to one of my clients or one of my customers about those sort of things and and put myself out there and and try to educate people a little bit, um, you know, I, I do. Um, and it's just, I, I feel like it's sort of my duty as a um, human on this planet to at least try to um, try to leave things better than I found them, you know. Um, and, and if more people did that, I think um, obviously our, our world would be in a much better state than it is right now. Um but yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm very lucky to to have found um, something that I'm good at that allows me one to make money, um, which it isn't certainly is not why I started doing it. 
Um, two, it allows me to share my lifestyle with people. And, and three, I think it allows me to um, speak to people about things that I value as a person, um, which is um, the environment and uh, nature and um, you know quality of life, which in whatever form that takes for you as a person. Um, you know, for me, uh, having the ability to, to be on my father's boat working is, is, it's, um, it's certainly not about the paycheck for me, um, because I don't make a lot of money fishing. Uh, it's about spending time with my dad. It's about learning. It's about absorbing the history of my heritage and, um, I've always told people that, you know, I, I learn new stuff from my dad all the time and whether or not I ever use it in a practical circumstance or not really isn't the point. It's, um, the moments that I share with him, the, the knowledge that I contain up here, uh, the things that I could pass on potentially. Um, but it's really about, um, you know, living in the moment and, um, I think, you know, like if, if the, and I certainly don't want to make the comparison directly, but like when you're working on the water, like you have to be in the moment, like, because if you are daydreaming or not paying attention, you might end up in the water. You might end up with missing fingers. You might end up dead. Hmm. You got to pay attention. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not the deadliest catch. We're not in the Bering Sea. But you could drown in an inch of water as easily as, uh, you know, 100 feet of water. And if you're not paying attention, um, something bad could happen. So I do love the idea of our lifestyle is sort of like, I, I, I don't want to say, it's not certainly not a direct comparison, but like my, the, the thing that I'm thinking of is like surfing. You know, like you, you are in that moment because you have to be. Nothing else matters. Like your grocery list doesn't matter. It's all about staying alive and catching that next wave for the surfer, I suppose. Um, and that, that might not be a great analogy, but it's sort of... Um, I think I understand. It's sort of like just being able to live a type of lifestyle that requires you to focus intensely and block everything else out. And um, there's certainly a huge value and there, in, in, that, in that ability to do that. Because, um, I, I, you know, if you ask, ask the average person, do you truly live in the moment? Most people probably wouldn't be able to say, yeah. And that's sad because that's really when you're really living. Like, you know, that's, you're not thinking about what do I got to do after work? You're not thinking about I got to mow the lawn or your grocery list or, or these, you know, sort of inconsequential things in, in life that we all have to deal with. But it gives you the ability to um, just cherish the time and, um, and appreciate it. How much longer do you think your dad's going to do it? Gosh, I don't know. My dad's 73. Um, if it was up to him, probably another 30 years. <laughs> but uh, realistically, you know, um, it's, a, it's a very physical job, um, which my dad has no trouble doing at 73, which is amazing. Um, 
I have always said that he probably works twice as hard as most people half his age. Um, but he's done it his whole life, so he's used to it. Um, but certainly doesn't get any easier. And one of the reasons I do like to go out there is because I know that I'm helping. Um, at least most of the time I think I'm helping. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, I know my dad would not stop fishing until he wasn't able to do it anymore. So um, my dad's not going to be like, oh, I got enough money, I'm going to stop fishing. He, he, he could retire right now. But that's what he's, it's what he does. It just, it's what he's um, done his entire life. Um, and like I said, it's for him, it's not a job; it's a lifestyle. He gets up in the morning, he goes to the boat, he goes fishing. It doesn't matter if it's November, doesn't matter if it's May or August, it doesn't matter if fishing sucks or is good, <laughs> because there's always those days where you're going to go out and and surprise yourself and say, "Well, damn, I was going to take today off," and you get lucky. Um, you know, something my dad's always said to me is like, "You can't catch fish unless you go fishing." And I carry that with me through life, especially now as an artist and a photographer and, and trying to sell my work. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to sell my work sitting on my ass at home. I mean, I guess I could through a website and whatever, but like, I like to meet people. I like to get out there on the streets and, um, and sort of um, force the issue. Um, it's over here on the main street you sell, right? Yeah, you know what? I, I've, I've been very lucky to have a couple different spots where I set up in town. Um, and I started doing that um, almost two years ago. Um, I was actually local restaurant, Bruce and Son. Uh, <clears throat> I had my work set up in the inside of the restaurant. And this is year, um, almost two years ago this winter. Um and I was trying to find ways of um, meeting new clients and and getting my work out there. And um, they had a little patio on the, the front of the restaurant. Um, and so I started setting up um, some prints out there um, and just meeting with people and showing people my art. And, and then COVID hit, you know, almost a year after that um, or Actually, that was just a few months. A uh, few months after that, um, so then that kind of, kind of screwed my ability to to do the uh, you know in person sort of sales stuff. But um, you know, pretty much for a good year solid, I've been setting up uh, almost every weekend um, through the winter, spring, fall, summer doesn't matter as long as it's not raining. Um, a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy. It's 25 degrees out, and I'm outside trying to sell art. And people are like, well, how the hell are you doing this? It's freezing. I said, well, I'm used to it. I'm usually on a boat working, so this is a lot easier yeah. for me. Like, So it's not a big deal. Um, but yeah, I've been very lucky, and, and I think this goes back to that whole idea of community and, and the close-knit community that I grew up in in small town. I know the business owners. I have a good relationship with them. They know me. They know my name. Um, they know my reputation, and people are willing to help each other out. Um, so it's been a huge, huge plus for me to have these relationships with local business owners that have allowed me to... Um, set up on their property and, and sell my art. And in, in almost every case, um, 
every case, at least right now, um, nobody's asking me for commissions, and um, it's just pure support, which is awesome. awesome. Yeah. All right, I'll ask you one more. When you're 73, or let's say 83, um, and you're looking back at photography, I know you didn't set out initially to think like, oh, this would be my profession. But when you're 83 and you're sitting back and putting your feet up and you're looking back on your photography, what would be a success to you? Like if you're sitting back, you're like, you know what? I really did it with photography. Success for me as a photographer. Um, you know, I, I think I think obviously there's there's different levels of success and you've got the financial aspect. And right now I feel like I'm certainly moving in the right direction to potentially do photography full time um, and be successful financially doing it. But I think... If I was that age looking back on my life, I think success for me would be um, at least right now knowing that I was able to um, not necessarily capture every moment, but expose myself to as many moments as possible with my father than I can. Um and whether it's uh, an image I take with my camera or something that I sort of, um, a moment or a, a, a saying or, or a lesson or something that I've learned from my dad that I can keep in my mind sort of as a, obviously not a photograph, but a, a memory. You know, if I'm able to take those experiences that I've, in those moments that I've spent with my father and be able to um, better myself with or, um, like I said, hopefully eventually one day maybe writing a book. It, you know, if I ever did do a book, that, that would be um, something that I would consider a success. Um, but, yeah, I, I think... Um, Ultimately, success for me as a photographer would be being able to share a story with people. Um, it certainly wouldn't be the money. It would be, and, and I find this often when I do share my art with people, is that people connect to it. Um, and it, it reminds them or brings them to a place of, of peace or happiness or positive memories. Um, because I do get a lot of people that connect to my imagery and say, wow, you know, a picture of a blowfish. It reminds them of growing up as a kid and going to their grandparents' beach house. And it reminds them of their grandparents and their childhood. And when I hear people telling me these stories... I think that's the ultimate success for me as an artist is being able to connect people to their own memories through my images, which to me is a blessing. Like, yeah. like when I can give somebody a piece of art and they're, I mean, I've had people cry, which to me is amazing. Like I've had people 
laugh with tears or, or remember somebody and cry, you know, whether it's a good good cry or, or, or a, you know, a sad memory or whatever it is, but people are actually so connected to the images sometimes that it, it comes out of them in, in emotions. And for me, that's, that's probably the biggest sign of success for my photography is when I can connect with somebody that deeply that mm. they actually have this true emotion that they go through. And um, that, that's something I never expected as a photographer. Um, and it's something that appeals to me greatly because it's, it's more about, it's more about, um, human interaction and connectedness other than just a piece of art on somebody's wall. You know, I could have a pretty sunrise and somebody, it's a nice picture to look at, but if I have an image that somebody, you know, can look at and it reminds them of of their childhood or their grandfather or their grandmother or their dad. Um, you know, I think there's so much more value in that for sure. I think that's a beautiful way to end it. Um, so in the player, whatever you're listening to this in Spotify, Instagram, uh, Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, I'll have a link to your Instagram. You have a website also? Uh, not at the moment. Okay. Just uh, the Instagram. So I'll link to the Instagram, and then if you're ever out here in Greenport, stop by and say hey and buy a print. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, man. This was a, a real pleasure. So yeah, I no appreciate problem. It. Happy to happy to have worked with you on it. It was awesome. Cheers. All right, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 247 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Closing in on 250 here. That's pretty cool. I hope you enjoyed this one with Chris. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining. Thank you to Verona, who was on episode 247, because she actually hooked us up with a house to record this conversation. There was a wild thunderstorm going on, so it was nice to seek shelter and to uh, not get soaked while we were recording this. Again, go to the notes for this episode and check out Chris on Instagram. Give him a follow. Support him. Buy his stuff when you're out in Greenport. Uh, He's a really, really talented and exciting photographer. So uh, it was my privilege to have him on here, and I'm so excited to now know him. Okay, got a couple more things in the works here. So there should be an episode following this one shortly. So stay tuned. Give me a follow. Please rate and review these things, these things, these episodes on uh, on iTunes. It it goes a long way. So if, if you could do that, that's great. Or word of mouth, tell a friend, that's great too. Okay, signing off. As always, Voyagers, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very, very soon. Mm-hmm.